This is Calgary Today with Angela Cocott on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Good Monday afternoon. Hope you had a great weekend. It was kind of one of those 50-50 weekends. Saturday, gorgeous. Sunday, a little cooler, although later in the day we had the sunshine. So hopefully you had a chance to get out and enjoy it. The topic I want to tackle this hour, it may be originating out of the U.S., but it's one that we can relate to. And it's how we deal with homelessness in our society. The U.S. government right now looking at budget cuts, looking at where they should be trimming costs. And and one of those things is how they fund services for the poor and the homeless. Carol Caton is a professor of sociomedical sciences in psychiatry at CUMC College of Physicians and Surgeons, Columbia University. She joins us today. Hello, Professor Caton. Hello, Angela. Please call me Carol. Well, I will. hello, Calgary. (laughs) Well, I will. Going forward, you're Carol to me. Why don't you give me a little bit of background, Carol, on what exactly the federal government is proposing or looking at when it comes to funding cuts? Well, what we have to work with at this point is uh, President Trump's uh, so-called skinny budget, which is just a very brief statement of what the uh, priorities uh, for financing are likely to be in fiscal year 2018, which begins October 1st. Uh, The negotiations and discussions around that haven't yet begun, although uh, we're all kind of preparing for... uh, (laughs) What's, uh, what they might do, because they have um, uh, suggested some uh, rather substantial budget cuts in our uh, 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 Department of Housing and Urban Development, which is, is the, uh, one of the government agencies that, uh, that funds uh, homeless services and housing for people at the lower end of the socioeconomic continuum. And also, I mean, there are many uh, of the uh, governmental agencies that get involved uh, in funding services for the homeless. Uh, Also, the uh, Health and Human Services, uh, which is uh, uh, very important in terms of the health care of people who are homeless and mentally ill. And Carol, I just wanted I just wanted a bit of the background because I, I was saying that, of course, this story is coming out of the U.S., but it's one that we can relate to as well. We're always looking at how do we fund the homeless situation? Are we putting money where it should be? But it was an opportunity for you to really focus on what's called supportive housing. What is supportive housing in the U.S.? Uh, supportive housing uh, is uh, housing. Uh, it can be um, many different types of housing. It can be um, a, a person living in a, in a community apartment, or it can be like a community residence or an apartment building that is devoted uh, exclusively to people who are formerly homeless and mentally ill. Uh, but what defines a supportive housing is not just the housing itself, but the su- supportive services that are made available to people uh, who live there. Um, and that's, uh, again, accomplished in a variety of different ways. Some of the services are on-site. Uh, these are in apartment buildings or, uh, or large uh, group facilities. Um, other uh, services are provided by mobile teams um, that uh, go around to uh, various uh, communities where there are people living in, in uh, just regular standard rental apartments, uh, and they, they serve people right there. Uh, it's a way to make sure that uh, people have access to the kind of mental health and health care that they need. And um, supportive housing 
was uh, started in New York City in the early 1980s. Interesting story behind it. Uh, two Franciscan priests um, had a parish on the um, uh, lower uh, east, lower west side of, of Manhattan, and uh, very close to where they were um, living uh, was a, a, a former SRO hotel uh, that was just filled with uh, discharged patients uh, from mental institutions. Um, and they had no services. Uh, they had uh, they just kind of wandered around, and uh, fortunately they had a roof over their head, but they didn't have much else. So they took it upon themselves to uh, to talk to the uh, building owner and negotiate, uh, having uh, two things. They had a kitchen so they could serve uh, two hot meals a day, and they also made arrangements with one of the local medical schools and clinics. Uh, to provide mental health services to the people who were living in this particular building. And it proved to be so successful uh, that the uh, priests were able to um, uh, eventually uh, purchase some buildings uh, and, um, uh, and set up their own uh, supportive housing settings. And uh, it, the, the model has been so successful that it has been copied. Uh, pretty much all over uh, the Western world. Uh, you have in Canada, in Canada just recently did a very interesting uh, five-city study, the At-Home Chez Soi study. I don't know if you're familiar with that. This is a study that was sponsored by the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And uh, it took place in five Canadian cities. I believe these cities were Vancouver, Winnipeg, Toronto, um, uh, Montreal and Moncton, and uh, what they did was they uh, there were uh, twenty million dollars, uh, which uh, to those of us who do research in the U.S. that was an enormous amount of money, uh, uh, were available to do some studies of people in support of housing. And what they did was they adopted a particular approach to supportive housing. Um, uh, th their uh, notion was to get people into housing right away, regardless of whether they were um, uh, clean and sober or whether they were stabilized on medication, just get them off the street and into housing. And then after they're stably housed, then they could be perhaps ready to accept services. And the approach has been so successful. And the Canadian study uh, was really the largest scale study of uh, supportive housing that has been done um, and uh, uh, has, has really, I, I think, uh, guided a lot of what we learned. And certainly what that study showed, which all the supportive housing studies seem to show, is that, first of all, homelessness is very expensive because when people are homeless uh, and they might use uh, emergency departments or hospital inpatient units, uh, they might have some stints in jails or prisons, uh, or in, in uh, shelters, it's, those crisis services are all very expensive. Uh, in fact, uh, in the U.S., the average cost of a person who is homeless per year is over $35,000. So if you can get these people into housing, into stable housing, and get them uh, on services, uh, they not only have an opportunity to have a much better life, uh, but it's also... Uh, money saving for um, state, federal, local budgets. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's been a, a very important um, intervention, 
And uh, when I wrote this piece that I think you're referring to in the conversation, um, I was uh, just uh, suggesting that if any policymakers read the article, that they uh, that they realize how important uh, supportive housing has been and that there have been over two dozen cost studies that have been done that all show the same thing, that it's very cost-saving to, uh, to give people access to housing and services uh, when they are people who are chronically homeless and uh, suffering from severe mental disorders. Carol, any idea, any idea the percentage of homeless people who struggle with a mental illness? Because I'd, I'd almost argue that if we were able to target the mental illness or the mental health, we could probably solve homelessness. Well, you'd certainly solve a very large piece of it. Um, about a third uh, of people who are uh, homeless and on the streets or in shelters uh, uh, have a, a mental illness, mm. what we call a severe mental illness. That would be like a psychotic disorder or a very se- severe depressive disorder. Um, uh, and uh, in order for people to get access to supportive housing in the United States, because it, uh, it does involve getting uh, disability benefits and, and a housing voucher, uh, people have to be, uh, it, it's meant specifically for people who are severely mentally ill, mm. so they have to qualify diagnostically in order to get access to housing. Uh, it's interesting that in the Canadian study that I referred to before, um, th- uh, their, their definition of mental illness was a bit broader quite a bit broader. In other words, you didn't have to necessarily be chronically mentally ill. You could have just had a, a depressive disorder or whatever or been down on your luck, and you still could have had access to um, the supportive housing that was offered in the Housing First study in Canada. Carol, hold on. Uh, I want to take a break here because afterwards sure. I want to talk about, and you mentioned in the 80s in New York when they even started this idea of a, a supportive housing. But prior to that, w- was it a case of moving people away from the institutions and trying to offload it almost onto communities? I want to touch on that after the break. Carol Caton is my guest. She's a professor of sociomedical sciences, Columbia University. And we are talking about supportive housing or how can we really help the homeless? after this. We are talking about homelessness and in particular supportive housing for those struggling with a mental illness. Carol Caton, professor of sociomedical sciences at CUMC College of Physicians and Surgeons, Columbia University, is my guest. And actually, uh, Carol, when you said your figures, you think it's about a third of the homeless would be struggling with some type of a mental disability. Was that right? Yes. I'm talking about a severe mental illness. Yeah, because I'd almost think it would be higher, so maybe I am lumping more in than just the severe mental disability. But And I'm wondering where we can kind of go back to see where things started to go off the rails. And I know you're in the U.S., and it's maybe a, a different story in Canada, but do you think when we started to move away from institutions that the the problem or the challenge almost was offloaded to communities? That's exactly right, Angela. That's just what happened. Uh, in the United States, uh, back in the, starting in the, about the, the late 1960s and into the 1970s, um, state institutions, which typically housed people with very severe mental illness, in fact, often people stayed there for their entire lives. They, you know, they were, that's, that was the primary treatment at the time. Uh, but there were new treatments that developed, the new um, uh, tranquilizing medications, 
uh, community psychiatry was a new and developing discipline after World War II. And so uh, there was a lot of optimism that you could discharge people from long-term hospital care into the community. Um, the only, <laughs> only problem was uh, people were discharged, but the services and the housing weren't available. Mm. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and that has, it's been slow to develop in this country. Um, but it, you know, but we've made a lot of progress. And, uh, it's been, it's been a long-term thing because, you know, this population, um, uh, they're pretty much uh, totally dependent on the largesse of government, uh, for their disability income, also for, uh, housing voucher, et cetera, um, and for health care. And uh, what happens in our country, you're seeing it happen now, is that whenever we get a new administration, a new president, uh, or in some cases a new governor, uh, a new mayor, the policy changes. Uh, and often with policy changes, there's also changes in budget. And uh, so that the progress has, has, you know, it's been it fits and starts because sometimes uh, there's been money available, there's been a lot of supportive uh, government um, agencies in terms of doing things, trying to do new things to help homeless people. Uh, but in other cases, you know, in, in a harder times, there were budget cuts, services were cut, and so that kind of set us back. Um, uh, and it's something that uh, we constantly have to deal with in this country. And that was pretty much the uh, one of the impulses behind my my speaking out, my my little article because right now our federal budget is being discussed and debated and there are proposed budget cuts in some really critical areas uh, that affect uh, the poor and uh, people who have experienced homelessness. And so I just wanted to get out there that we do have some solutions that work. And really, when I read your article, it's in the conversation.com if anyone wants to check it out. But when I read it, I thought, you know, this we're having the same struggle and challenges in Canada as well. And and I think there are some great, here in Calgary, we've, we've got some great shelters, we've got uh, some great facilities, but I almost think that we've gotten to the point where we just warehouse the homeless, whether they are working poor or if they are struggling with any kind of a mental health issue or addiction and and a lot of money goes into those facilities whether it be through private or public donations that i think we could be using those dollars differently and also take some of the money that i'd like to see as you mentioned if you have someone housed and in a supportive housing situation you're going to see savings in other social areas such as emergency uh, care facilities hospitals jails so i I, and, and it's it's a huge thing to think of, but it would almost be looking at the funding model, upending it almost. Well, you know, it's interesting that the cost of housing and services uh, uh, is offset uh, by the reductions in public service costs in this country. Uh, in other words, you save so much money uh, in, in uh, having people shift their use of services from these very costly crisis services like shelters, like hospitals, yeah. like emergency departments, like jails and prisons, and then you get them stably housed, and then the services are outpatient services, which are much, much less costly. And so it's, it's really, um, that's just an amazing thing about this, is that you can, 
it, it's really, it makes good sense financially to do this because the money is better spent. And it also uh, creates a, a much better life for, for you know, people who are mentally ill. It gives them a chance to, you know, to fully recover. It's very hard for people when they're living out on the street um, you know, having to struggle with well, where am I going to sleep tomorrow night or where am I going to get my next meal, if they can think about, okay, now I'm really going to try to get well. You know, I'm really going to, you know, stick with the treatment the doctor has recommended and, and uh, see what I can do. And, and we've seen people uh, get, back, uh, back, get back into the mainstream. You know, they're able to get a part-time job or they're able to go back to school uh, or they're able to, you know, get back in touch with relatives or, or pursue some kind of an avocation. Like one man I know desperately wanted to learn how to play the guitar. So he finally, when he got himself stably housed and back uh, you know, on treatment, he was able to uh, pursue music lessons, which meant a lot to him. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's not just the money savings, but it gives people a better life. And I think it also does a lot for the communities, too, to know that, look, we don't have people, as many people living on our streets anymore. You know, they're, they're all, you know, they're all housed now. And that, I think, leads to maybe a better quality of life for the community. For the community, yeah. Carol, uh, thank you so much for starting the conversation and her uh, uh, opinion piece is in theconversation.com. Thanks again, Carol. My pleasure, Angela. Carol Caton, she's a professor of sociomedical sciences at Columbia University, 403-974-8255. I'm throwing it out here. And um, you know what? I've, I've volunteered at the mustard seed. I've done stuff with the drop-in center. But I'm wondering if we're going about it the wrong way. I want to get your opinion on this. That's the number to call and text. You can always email me as well, Angela at Newstalk770.com. How we are treating the homeless in our society after this. Calgary Today with Angela Cocott, weekdays at 3 on News Talk 770 Calgary.